Welcome to The Hop Take. Today is Saturday, February 17th. I'm Peter Thomas. And I'm Jim Scanlon. On this episode, we will discuss Chief Bennett's role in former Deputy Chief Jay Porter's side job, the Democratic Party decides to caucus and then changes their mind, and the school committee asks taxpayers for another 50 million bucks. But first, our main story this week is that last weekend, Hopkinton residents turned out by the hundreds to sign a recall petition for the select board. Last Saturday and Sunday, organizers of a petition to recall the Hopkinton Select Board stood outside the CVS and Price Chopper to collect signatures from Hopkinton residents. Tables were set up and crowds lined up to sign the petitions. Early results from the effort revealed that more than 2,200 signatures were collected, with Select Board member Amy Ritterbush receiving the most. While the results are unofficial and must be validated for authenticity by the town clerk, Organizers were confident that their movement was gaining momentum. Per the Hopkinton Town Charter, the first phase of a recall requires organizers to collect 10% of registered voters, about 1,326, evenly distributed across all five voting precincts. The next phase requires 20% of voters to sign from any precinct. Hop News caught up with 55-year town resident Joe Hayward, who had this to say. So, Joe, how long have you lived in town? Uh, 55 years. What's your last name? Hayward. As in Hayward Street? Yeah, there's a relation. So you guys have been here a long time then? Yeah, I believe since 1600s, 1700s. And you've been here 55 years? Yep. And you're out here today, why? Because we want, I'd like to see the select board recalled because of what happened to Tim and the ongoings in town. Yeah, just, just sick of it, wasting money, and they don't care. They don't want it. They don't want to be heard from the town residents, so they shouldn't be there. They're Joe, elected by us. Joe, you have in 55 years, you've seen a few select boards come and go. Yep. And how does this one, in your mind, rank? I mean, when you think about it, probably like, the worst. And enough's enough. So, Jimmy, you are one of the organizers of this effort. What's really driving this? Well, there's a lot of things, Peter, and um, let me just first say last weekend was a huge success. I'm, as you know, part of a group of people that really have been leading this effort from the beginning. And I think we were all just blown away by the overwhelming support that we received from residents. And, you know, in addition to the lines of people signing up to sign, it was just good to talk to people and, and hear from them. I mean, a couple things really stood out for me. First, um, this is not political, right? I'm center, leaning right for the most part. Happy to admit that in this town, sometimes you gotta be careful. Um, but there were a lot of people telling us specifically, hey, I've been a Democrat forever and I'm just sick of this and we need to change and these people need to go. I mean, you heard a lot of that. So that was interesting. What was also interesting is that there was a lot of people that really were unaware, right? Not really fully in tune what's going on around town. And I kind of hearken that back to what I've said on previous podcasts. I too, for many years, were just was not aware of, never really thought about what went on in town. But I was fortunate in the 20, most of the 20 years that I lived here, the town was, was led by people that really knew what they were doing and there was never really any problems. So, you know, I, I think of myself as like the base case for this little mini rebellion. You know, there are lots of people that have just finally, after sitting idly by for years, have just had enough. And we saw a ton of that this weekend, or last weekend, I should say, um, 
well over 500 citizens, residents, signed this petition. And, and that was just with just a couple of hours. We were only out Saturday and Sunday for just a couple of hours. And that was just phase one. Um, so I don't think we're going to have any problem at all getting the, the, the minimum required number of signatures to advance this recall to the next stage. I did stop by the table to just see how things were going. And I took some pictures and I was blown away by how many people were there. Um, and, and like you said, it was, it was, it seemed to be people from both sides of the spectrum yeah. or all sides of the spectrum. Um, but this isn't just about the Brennan thing, right? No, I mean, not. there's more to it than that. Yeah. I mean, one of the, and you, and you played a clip earlier about, uh, I think his name was Joe Hayward. I was there. I chatted with that guy. What an, what an interesting, nice guy he was. He'd been here forever. Lots of people like him were, were coming out and we were talking more about, uh, the ongoing, the happenings in town beyond just the Brennan case, right? I mean, uh, that's really what this is about. It's not, I mean, the Brennan case just cast a big bright light on the inadequacies and the competence of this board. And it's not just the Brennan case that has gotten all of us so riled up to the point where we want to recall these people. It is a series of missteps, failings, incompetence that has all of us thinking, wait a second, we need better leadership. We need a change. And that's what's really spurring it on. And so throughout the two to three hours we were out there each day, it was a couple of, you know, there was lots of things to talk about besides the Tim Brennan case. I mean, one of the things we really came up a lot was uh, the way the select board's handling or maybe even not handling uh, the actions of the, of the chief. I mean, everybody knows there very likely was a crime committed by releasing that sensitive information of the, of the victim, right? We know that. What has the select board done? Have, you know, the right thing would have been to reach out to an independent investigative body like the district attorney, right? They should have maybe considered putting the chief uh, on leave, suspending On leave him. or something, something while right? they figure it out. Do something. Uh, but instead they do nothing, right? They do nothing. And so we're doing something. There's lots of people that have already reached out to the district attorney to try to get somebody to come in here and take a look at what's happening. Well, it's interesting because on that point, the select board has had two meetings subsequent to those revelations coming out. And they have not, if you look at the agenda and you look at what they in fact discussed, they pretend that it doesn't even like exist. they live in a different town. It really is. They're like, they're, they're not seeing what everybody is seeing. I mean, there's massive problems in the executive leadership at the police department and clearly at the, at the select board and town hall, but they're not seeing it. And that is, you know, that, that was just one of, you know, that was really a main topic that came up. I mean, other things that really has people riled up is the complete mismanagement of the downtown project. I think everybody's pretty much in agreement that that's been a total incredible failure from start to finish that falls back in the select board, right? That's their, that, that's their responsibility to manage that project. That's been managed very poorly. The massive turnover, both in town hall and at the police department. I mean, you just don't need to look very hard to see that there's glaring problems all over the place. So if you're a select board member, a sitting select board member, what type of this, what, what message does this send to you? If I'm waking up in the morning and I'm on that select board, especially after what we saw this past weekend, I, I'd have to take a really hard look at myself and say, where, where have I fallen down? What, how have I failed in, to serving my constituents? Uh, I don't, I think that's big, a big part of the problem. I don't think the select board really cares. I don't think they're, they're, they're getting it. I don't think, I think the only message they're going to get is the recall when it actually happens. Well, I have, I was thinking about this on the way in today. There, there has been no public comment or even acknowledgement from any select board member, nor has there been a public comment from the Democratic Town Committee, of which they're all five Democrats, or the Republican Town Committee. There's been just, from the political apparatus in this town, there has been no comment about this. And this is a big thing. 
like how it's almost like there's like a fire happening right downtown and yeah. no one says a thing. Yeah. I, you know, as we talk about Democrat and Republicans, we'll talk a little bit more about that. I imagine a little later on in the, in the pod, but if this was, and I, I, I imagine most of the select board members are Democrats. I think I don't, they are all, all right. five are Democrats. Yeah. They're all registered Democrats. All right. If Republicans were acting this way, I'd be just as pissed. Absolutely. Right. I mean, this is not uh, a political assassination. This is just looking at who we have, making the decision, pulling the levers on really important things that matter to these people and, and, and evaluating their conduct and then making a determination as to what, how, what should be done. And we've decided, political affiliations aside, these people are not, they're not fit for the office and where they, 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 they sit and they need to move. They, so you, they need to get moved. So you collected, your group collected more than 2,000 signatures. What is the next step now? Are yeah, you so, going back out to sure. CVS again? So that's uh, a couple things. First, as most people know, only three of the board members are actually eligible to be recalled, right? But we thought best to send a message by having signatures for each of the board members. So five petitioned. And by town charter, you have to have a recall statement for an individual. You can't put them all on the same sheet. So, you know, and asking someone to sign their name and their address five times is a little onerous, but people were happy to do it. And so despite the fact that two of the board members, Muriel and Irfan, are not eligible to recall, to be recalled, we're, we still saw a huge number of signatures on their sheet. And I think that just sends a message of no confidence to these folks as well. And by the way, we're we're way past 2,000 signatures now. I mean, even now, all week long, we've gotten emails from folks that have heard about it or want to, were unable to, to to come out Saturday and Sunday. So we're continuing to get signatures. Um, but phase two is gonna is gonna really come back to another another announcement for um, a petition signing. I think it's gonna be targeted for the very early part of March. I mean, we got spring uh, school vacation weeks. So everyone, you know, the town's pretty much cut in half in terms of its population. I think. Uh, so we're going to probably be out again in the very first weekend of March, and we're going to look to collect more signatures. And then from there, we'll probably canvas the various precincts where, I mean, the, the most of the signatures came in pretty evenly split again, uh, for the five precincts that we have. But um, from there, if we go, if we need to go into each additional precinct to get the signatures, we'll do it. But I think if we pick up another five, 600 signatures, as we expect that we might for this next phase, phase two, um, we're going to be right there. Our next story on Blackstone Valley Tech, Chief Bennett silenced himself. On Tuesday, I published an op-ed in Hop News regarding the much-discussed issue of former Deputy Chief Jay Porter's continuing to coach high school girls soccer at Blackstone Valley Tech, even while he was on administrative leave for allegations of sexual assault. During Tim Brennan's Loudermill hearing, Police Chief Joe Bennett made several statements that caught my attention. As a matter of historical reference, on August 24th of 2022, as stated, I received a phone call from a member of the Massachusetts State Police assigned to the District Attorney Marion Ryan's office. And I was told that the detectives were en route on the way to meet with Sergeant Brennan to discuss allegations against the deputy related to a potential sexual assault of a child. The only way our our community found out about an allegation against a member of our department was from a state trooper. I was instructed at the time that in order to protect the integrity of the investigation, that I not discuss the nature of the allegation with anyone, including the deputy. 
I confirmed that investigators were aware that Deputy Porter was currently a coach in a neighboring community where he coached girls youth soccer. So no doubt Bennett was told to stay out of it by the DA, but it was within the chief's power to remove Porter as a coach at BVT. And that's because the Hopkinton PD has a policy that requires any officer who wants to work outside of the department to get the chief's permission in writing. While Porter received permission from one of Bennett's predecessors, Bennett could have rescinded this at any time with or without cause. And in doing so, he would have honored his commitment to the DA to not interfere with the investigation, but simultaneously protecting the girls at BBT from an alleged sexual predator. Jimmy, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you started by saying this was a, uh, the next story, but it really is a continuation of the last story. Um, this is probably uh, one of the most disheartening things to, to come to light for me as I kind of got involved and started seeing the timeline of events. Everybody knows that this chief and Porter were really good friends, buddies, right? They know that's well documented. And now he had an opportunity to rescind his work authorization right after he was suspended, right? That should have, ha that should have happened and it didn't. And why? And why is no one talking about it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know because he could have, he could have simply just said, you're on administrative leave. I mean, he had to tell him why for, for allegations of sexual misconduct or sexual assault. And you are no longer authorized to work outside of this department. And, and he, of course he knew he was a soccer coach it, down, down the street. He says so in the Loudermill hearing. Yeah. He so, said that he warned the DA of that. We just heard the clip of that. He says that he warned the DA. He, he twice affirmed it. He knew. Everybody knew. And didn't he also say that he knew how to handle these cases, right? That was part of the reason that we're trying to uh, put Brennan up on, uh, you know, run him out of town with it. He knows how to handle these types of things, which clearly didn't. He post personal information on the website. He had a chance to get this guy away from other girls, which he should have done. He didn't. And it's this, this is just my opinion, but I just feel like that the, the incompetence being demonstrated by this chief is, has blown me away. How this guy still has a job is, it, it's mind boggling. On the, the Facebook, I guess the Hop News Facebook and across some of the comments, people have come in and said, well, he was told not to interfere with the DA's investigation. So it wasn't his call. But my assertion on that is that you could have just suspended him and then Porter would have had to resign. Didn't even have, you, you don't even have to tell somebody why you're resigning. You just say, I can't work here anymore. Yeah. And that would have been it. And that wouldn't have interfered with the investigation at all, right? Well, he was, the, the chief had to tell him during why he was being suspended, right? That's yeah. clear. Yeah. And so there's, you know, he doesn't need to provide a reason to rescind his work authorization. No. That's just part of that. It's, been, it's with or without cause. It's yeah. the same as if he, like, if you have a concealed carry permit in this town or you want one, you have to go before the chief to get approval. Everybody in this town has to go before the chief. And the chief can, at any time, pull that concealed carry permit, just decide, hey, you can't, Jimmy, have a concealed carry anymore and that's it there's no cause needed the law does not require him to show cause he can simply just arbitrarily do it and it's the same with the work authorization just uh, arbitrarily do it just as a side note i was thinking about getting a, a, a concealed carry permit i think perhaps i'll be waiting a little bit you, longer probably not with this chief yeah related to this uh a guy named dave crow came in to he's he's been in town for a long time I know 30 dave. years you know dave yeah okay. know him well so He's a veteran of the insurance industry, and he wrote a letter to the select board this week outlining the town's potential liability for their actions related to Brennan and the police chief and Amy Ritter Bush's outing the victim and Jay Porter's time as the SRO. So I, I have to just say this. Kudos to Dave, because yeah. 
he went and did a FOIA request and got the town to produce their insurance documents, essentially, yep. which which is kind of above and beyond what a, I mean, I do that kind of stuff all the time, but I don't expect yeah. a private citizen to do that. Right. So he did. And he added it all up. And he concluded that the town has about eight million dollars in liability coverage. Yeah. OK. Various policies, about eight million bucks. So he asserted that if the if the town is found liable for more than the eight million dollars, that it's on the residents to make up the difference. And he also pointed out that there were many exclusions and riders in that policy yeah. to, you know, that the, the insurance company might say, well, I'm not going to defend you on this. They probably won't. So another guy then comes in, a guy named Chris comes into the comment that uh, Crow's on Crow's article. Um, and he says, yeah, I've done the math. And if the jury awards a liability of more than $10 million in this case, beyond the insurance coverage, which is very possible given you have wrongful termination and you've got the victim suit and you've just got all this it's stuff just, stacking the list goes up. on and on. He said, that's going to go to about $1,500 to each residential taxpayer, assuming that, uh, you know, your house is worth $704,000. Now, if you have a house worth more than that, it's obviously worth more, right? It's like everything else. So there is a real cost to taxpayers for this. I know. This is awful. And I mean, for, you can do the math. Yeah. And Dave did it as long as this, this is other gentleman with his comment. Uh, you know, first, let me say that was an expertly written article. I know Dave, he's a sharp guy. Uh, he does his homework. Clearly he did. That was really insightful. And this is, I think, on the minds of a lot of people that are paying attention to what's going on in town. But I, you know, I think hopefully as more people become aware of the potential financial impact to their personal lives, you know, that's really the best way to get people to rise up and, you know, get out on election day, or maybe hopefully get out to sign a recall petition is when it hits them in the pocketbook. All right. In humor this week, Democrats <laughs> did an about face on caucusing. So, Last week, Hop News submitted a freedom of information request to town clerk Connor Deegan to request any correspondence between his office and the Democratic and Republican town committees since the November special meeting. Deegan returned a series of emails that showed each committee was exploring holding caucuses in spite of the passing of Article 2, which eliminated caucuses in town. At issue is the home rule petition submitted by Hopkinton to the state legislature, but it hasn't been signed into law yet, which technically makes caucusing legal for the time being. The Republican town committee learned all of this and ended up deciding against caucusing, telling Hop News that, quote, at the end of the day, we want to be a party committee that is supportive of the decisions and views of the people in Hopkinton. Some decisions are less about if you can and more about if you should. The Democratic Town Committee, on the other hand, elected to schedule caucusing for April 12th. Now, when this fact was brought to light, several readers provided scathing criticism of the committee, with one saying that this was, quote, another example that political parties do not care about the interests of the people. The singular goal is to gain and retain power. Bingo. Later in the week, the leadership team at the Democratic Town Committee met and decided to cancel the caucus. Committee Chair Amy Groves told the Hopkinton Independent that they decided to cancel the caucus Quote, so that candidates and voters may focus on the issues rather than on the caucus. Jimmy, <laughs> what do you make of this sudden turn of events? It's just funny, really. It is a funny story because, you know, once you, you once you get caught, you kind of change your narrative right away, right? Oh, yeah, we, we well, we really weren't going to do it. We really want, you know, to keep this 
uh, you know, we want to listen to the, to the voters. Right. If it didn't get brought to light, they would absolutely have caucused. Uh, it's about retaining power. Uh, you know, some of these people on the Democratic side are really, quite frankly, I find nauseating. Um, some aren't. I mean, I like I, I think we were, you and I have talked about this before. I mean, I don't know Muriel Kramer. I'm, I imagine she's really way, way, way left of me. But I, you know, she seems like a reasonable person. I think I could probably enjoy having lunch with her or having a coffee. But you know, some of these, some of these folks in the Democratic Party are just, just, just so far gone, and will do anything they can to retain, hold on with their icy cold grip to any sort of power they can. So let's let's talk about what the difference is here. I mean, if you caucus, you're essentially nominating the candidates for the ballot. That's right. Okay. And Article 2 that passed at the special town meeting basically said no political parties in local elections. There's no there's no reason for that. I mean, Hopkinton is one of 13 towns in the Commonwealth with those still. Uh, we don't want national political narratives interfering with our local elections. Consequently, we're going to eliminate caucuses, and that would require anybody who wants to be on the ballot to collect 50 signatures. In other words, go meet the people. Yeah. Go meet the people you're going to represent. Now, the caucus is a shortcut to that. You don't have to collect the signatures to do that. I will say many people do collect the signatures still, but you don't have to. Okay, so that's the whole reason why the framers of Article 2, who were Ed Harrow and John Cardillo, both registered Democrats, I will add, mm -hmm. wanted uh, they wanted Article 2 to go through because they were like, hey, this is just a shortcut to the ballot. And why not like let people get out and meet folks? Right. I mean, isn't that the whole idea? But beyond that, talk about reading the room. I mean, <laughs> the town voted against this and what i've heard some of these folks say in the political parties is yeah well they voted but it didn't pass by much okay so in other words there were a lot of people who didn't want to so okay well whatever it still passed yeah uh it, I, it's hard to even you know put to words how just silly this all is i mean another example of not listening to the people that's really what it comes down to yeah and i do want to say i will say this for the record for anybody listening if the Republican town committee had chosen a caucus, I would be skewering them, too. Of course. If there was an entirely Republican select board, I would be skewering them, too. Hop News is not necessarily a right or a left. Like, it just happens to be that five Democrats happen to sit on the select board and they happen to be making choices that they're making, you know, doing things or not doing things that they should be. So... I will state very clearly for anybody listening that this is a nonpartisan podcast and our paper is nonpartisan. What I don't like is apathy, dishonesty, and stupidity. And that's what we go after. And we have plenty of that around town. Our next story. The school committee is about to ask voters for another $50 million. Wow. In the United States, the COVID-19 pandemic led to a significant decline in birth rates, which many people referred to as the COVID baby bust phenomenon. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts was also affected by this trend. According to the Department of Vital Statistics, Massachusetts saw a 4% year-over-year decline in live births in 2020. Experts attribute several factors to the COVID baby bust, including economic uncertainty and job loss, healthcare concerns, and overall stress the pandemic had on families. Notably, the pandemic seemed to have very little effect on Hopkinton, and in fact, the opposite was true. The number of live births in Hopkinton in 2021 jumped a startling 11% over 2020. Cue the Barry White music. I'm 
This was the biggest change since 2016 when Hawkinton parents welcomed 159 babies, a 17% increase over the prior year. How is this relevant? On Valentine's Day, Hop News published an analysis of data that joined the records from vital statistics with projected school enrollment numbers that the district has relied upon in presentations about new school buildings. What we found is that the district's demographer did not account for the baby boom our town saw in 2021. And since the demographer's predictions were based on a linear increase of 0.4% year over year, it makes future year projections suspect as well. The school committee is now preparing to ask town meeting voters to fund a $49 million renovation of the Hopkins School, which would add a new gym, a multi-purpose room, art room, and several classrooms. That school was built for 628 students, but now houses 687. In short, they are out of space, and the projections show that it will only get worse. If town meeting voters approve the addition, and upon completion of the new Elmwood Elementary School, the district's plan is to move grade six from the middle school to Hopkins, and then add more high school classes at the middle school, which will alleviate the overcrowding at the higher grade levels and take us through the year 2030. Jimmy, this is bound to be unpopular since voters just signed on for about $90 million to build a new Elmwood school. Yeah. But what choice have we got? I know, this is a tough one. I mean, I think, by and large, most of us are super supportive of enhancing and improving our schools at every opportunity we can, of course, within reason, right? I mean, many of us chose to raise our families here because the schools are amazing. And I've said this before, I've seen it firsthand with my own kids. But on the flip side, you know, my family has been in the construction business for about 60 years. So I know a little bit about that business and the bidding process and how it all works. And one of the things that just stuck with me last November was, why does it cost $160 million to build a school? Do we need a rainforest or whatever it was that people were talking about that this new school, this new environment was going to have? I mean, who's, who's responsible for the bidding process? How does it work? Who's, who's watching those guys? I mean, is, now it's another $49 million to put an addition onto the Hopkins School. What does that look like? Is there a cafeteria, there's a rec room, there's art rooms, a couple of classrooms. Is that really is that really fifty million dollars? Is anybody looking at that? Well, I don't I don't know if it if there is. And and you're right. I mean, I know that Vertex is involved. That's the district's or the, the school committee's consultant, the town's consultant, I should yeah, say. Who, who who hired them? Who's watching them? Who be, so you know And the I, bids aren't finalized, by the way. This is an estimated forty nine. And and what we know from the Elmwood School experience is that once the school committee gets the bill of materials in front of them they can start making choices to shave off things here and there nothing gets shaved off it'll it's, be 69 million when it's done it's, it's it's a couple million here and there right but it's 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 at the margins it's not it's not necessarily going to be significantly different i just all i'm saying is there needs to be and there should be more transparency in the whole process the uh who whoever's sourcing the bids the bids themselves i mean there really needs to be more transparency there's a lot of money um and you know, as I hear these huge numbers, it just makes me feel, I feel like almost like we're in Rhode Island where there's graft everywhere. It just has that feeling to it. I mean, until, at least for me personally, you kind of get a better sense of how much things really cost and what, who's, it's just, it's just very concerning. It's a lot of money. So let's go back to the demographer's projections here for a second. Why do you think people in Hopkinton were immune from the COVID baby bust? Have they ever heard of contraception, the CVS? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just saying, right? Like, wh why is it that people had more babies here when the rest of the country and, in fact, the rest of the world was pulling back? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the clinic birth rate, is a, is a, it has a demonstrable 
economic effects over the long term. I mean, you're seeing it now over the last 20 plus years in Japan, for example, it's, it's really problematic. But a couple of things that, you know, this is a very affluent town, right? A lot of people, very successful, and it's a commuter town. And you have a, a situation during the pandemic when all of a sudden everybody's working from home. And I think probably less so than on the national stage, worrying about job loss and job security, all that sort of thing. So there's more one-on-one time. I guess so, uh, because it ended up being not just off by a little bit, but by, off by quite a lot. Like 45 more kids were born than the demographer projected. Those kids would start school, start kindergarten in 2025. So what I see is that the kindergarten class of 2025 is about 45 kids more than they projected. Okay. That's about two classrooms. And then as those kids move through second, third, fourth grade, and so on, those classes are all much bigger than they projected. So I guess what I'm saying is what the school committee is telling us, based on the projections from their demographer, are inaccurate. It's actually worse. It it's is. actually going to be worse yeah. than what they're saying. And so I don't know what that means for us down the road. Is it another addition? Uh, is it, it, you know, we've got to get the numbers right today so we don't have to come you know, back to the residents tomorrow and ask for even more money. So the real estate market has a ton to do with this. We've talked about the baby boom, okay? That That is a factor. But another factor are people who sell their houses, uh, move out of town after their kids are through the system, and then other people move in yeah. with kids Presumably. or planning to have kids, okay? So that's just a fact that there are, there are no more legacy farms happening um, there's some small developments here and there, but there's nothing big like Toll that. Toll Brothers thing going on. Exactly. So what ideas do we have that, that, you know, how can we stop that? How can we stop people from selling their houses and moving out? Because we know that that just brings kids. Yeah. I mean, you got 45 roughly or, uh, or so that's going to be entering the school system, just as you said. And as more and more people move because it's just economically unviable, it's too expensive. And, and it's, and they're replaced presumably at some point, you got to just do some general math that new families are going to be coming in. So now it puts extra pressure on the schools and the classrooms. So what does that look like? I mean, so now we're, I mean, we've, we did a little math. I mean, there's how many residents over 65 here in town? So there's about 13% of the residents are over 65. Um, and there's about 6,700 homes in Hopkinton. So we did a little bit of math on this, Jimmy, and you, you've got it written down there. Break it down for us. Yeah, so we were talking about this before the show. There's about 430 houses. If you assume residents over 65 are married, right? So two people per house, 430 houses. If you just estimate that perhaps maybe 5% a year turnover, move on somewhere else, Florida perhaps, um, that comes to about 22 houses coming on the market each year. And if they're sold presumably to younger families with two kids. So then you have another... 44 kids coming in to the school system. Right, at some so we're point. looking about 88 kids a so, year. Yeah. That's, right. So coming now, in. Well, if you add the birth rate, right. And assuming that the birth rate stayed there, which it won't, it'll it won't. decline again. Yeah, it will. But it you will. have at least on those numbers, you have at least 40, 45 kids a year coming into the school. For the next couple of years. And maybe, and, and if you've just maybe pulled 75% of that, so you got 60 kids coming in roughly over the next five to six years. Yeah. It's still a lot of kids. It's still are, a lot of kids and they've got to be educated because that's how we do things in this country. Now, one of the ideas that I've heard is uh, the town could implement a different residential tax rate for people 65 and over. 
And if you did that, if you had a decreased tax rate, I mean, one of the reasons people sell their houses is because the taxes are so high, right? I mean, the, the schools, we keep coming back to them. So if you did that, it would have the effect of cooling the real estate market. It would make it so that two seniors living in a house would be less likely to want to sell because they could afford to stay in the town. And then that would essentially prevent new families from coming in. Yeah, I guess the, I can see that. I mean, by the way, the Fed's also done a pretty nice job of cooling the real estate market by jacking rates up over and over again for the last couple of years. But that's a slippery slope, you know, reducing rates for a certain demographic. And then it just, I can see that becoming very messy and argumentative at town meeting and other places and Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts, people just getting really upset about that. But I, I get it. You know, I I get the economics of it. And um, it not just cooling the market, but also giving people that love this town dearly an opportunity to stay here. All right. Make a prediction. Does the Hopkins edition pass at the town meeting in May or not? Everything passes at the town meeting. Of course it will. And my bigger concern is 49 is not the number. It'll be higher than that at some point down the road. All right, Jimmy, you want to talk a little bit of history? My favorite part of the show. All right. Well, this one is related to our last story. Today, we're going to talk about the history of the center school. What to do with the almost 100-year-old building has become a popular topic of debate in town. Some folks want to keep it as is. Others want to relocate town hall there. And some think it would be a great location for a mixed-use commercial and residential property. The town is actively soliciting bids from developers to make proposals for what they would do with the property. There are a lot of people in town with strong feelings about that school. Some went there and others took their kids to school there. A lot of folks just want to see the building preserved, even though it has fallen into a state of disrepair. But what many people don't know is the history of how the center school came to be built. And that's what we're going to talk about today in our History Minute. That's right, Peter. The center school was built in 1928 for a grand total of about $66,000, which is a little more than $1.1 in today's dollars. Somebody should see if we can't find those contractors. But... Of course, it's safe to say no building that size could be built for a million dollars today, clearly. What's interesting about it is the state of the economy in Hopkinton when the school was built. Most people are familiar with the old high school when you're traveling down Main Street, which was built in the 1880s. And it's a beautiful historic brick building that has now been converted to a commercial space. When that building was built, Hopkinton was flush with cash and thriving during the second industrial revolution. Hopkinton was a bootmaking town back then and our city fathers saw it fit to invest in a building that would stand the test of time. But by the late 1920s, the party was over. America was in a deep recession and about to spiral further into a depression, and all the boot factories had left town. The superintendent of schools, W.B. Lyman, reported that he had no more room to educate Hopkinton students, and he pleaded with town residents to build a new elementary school, which was, at the time, just a two-room schoolhouse. Yeah, that's right. By 1927, Lyman had prevailed upon the town and an article appeared on the warrant at town meeting. It asked the town to appropriate a grand total of $71,000 to build a new school building. So for the record, that project came in under budget. Probably the first and only time. And they wanted to build the building on the site of the two-room schoolhouse on Ash Street, directly across from the Common. So at town meeting, the vote initially passed, but it was contested by a member of the audience. A second vote was held, and it passed too, but it was also contested. So finally, a member of the audience requests a standing vote, and the moderator in the room was like, hey, this room is too crowded, and he scuttled it, saying it had already passed and that they should just move on already. 
But let me give you a little fun fact about that town meeting. Hopkinton at that time had about 5,000 residents. So that's 1928. And 1,124 people attended that town meeting. Now, fast forward to November's town meeting, just last November, where a school also was on the warrant. Only 862 people attended in a town of about 20,000. So they had a lot better. I mean, there were people were really engaged back then. Where would they have held a town meeting with a thousand people back then? I wonder. I think I think at town hall. I, I think there was there was actually a meeting space in town hall to do Big it. Big enough to hold a thousand people. And or a church. Yeah, there were. I think the first congregational church held a lot of town meetings as well. Wow. So anyway, let's get back to 1928. The town they didn't actually have the money at the time to fund the 71,000. As you mentioned, it was a depression or a recession heading toward a depression. It's rumored that they actually raised the cash by selling bonds to town residents, which were collateralized by the tax rolls. Yeah, and to make room for the new building, the town knocked down a beautiful Greek revival building, not too dissimilar to some of the houses you see near the common today. And relatively speaking, the building was put up in a hurry because by January 1928, just seven months later, the children moved in, much to the delight of Superintendent Lyman, his teachers, and the students, except for the ones that were kept home because of a whooping cough and a measles epidemic. And that's how the center school came to be. That's a great story, uh, especially as we consider, you know, what we're going to do with that building. Um, I, I, there's so many folks that have so many opinions uh, about it and, and a lot of emotion about it as well. Um, you know, if you've ever been into that building, well, first of all, it's condemned now. We yeah. should say that. And it's asbestos laden and it, you know, there's a lot of water damage and a bunch of mold and stuff. So it's not really usable. And contractors are going to have to remediate all of that before it becomes anything useful to the town. But um, it's it's just interesting to me. What's interesting to me about this story is the difference in the character of the high school in 1880, the building structure itself yeah. and how beautiful it is with the brick versus the character of the center school. If you just compare the two facades, they look very different. And that really is a tale of two Hopkintons. Yeah. So I've noticed the high school, the old high school, you could tell it's built to last and almost it's like a fortress, almost like some of the armories you see around the state. It's really, really impressive. Yeah. It was really, really cool uh, history of those buildings there. Well, listeners, we've reached the end. Thank you so much for joining us on the pod today. Jimmy, what do you got to say to these folks? Thank you. And we'll see you around town. 